Good morning, my name is Mari Kirk. I'm the Director of Communications and Stakeholder Engagement here with the United States Study Center. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today uh, for this very timely and relevant webinar. Is Russia's invasion of Ukraine a turning point for all US allies or just NATO? Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia. The University of Sydney stands on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And I pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging. I further acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which you are and pay respects to their elders past, present, and future. We are witnessing the largest ground war in Europe since the Second World War. A full-blown invasion and attack from one of the world's nuclear superpowers with a much smaller former territory. The crisis in Ukraine is escalating almost by the minute, it seems. The pictures and stories of civilians caught in the fray is juxtaposed with the leader on the streets and citizens from all walks of life enlisting to resist in any way they can. We want to cover a wide range of topics today uh, that tap into the unique insights of our exemplary guests. We have U.S. Studies Center non-resident senior fellow Stephen Loosley. Stephen grew up with uh, Cold War dominating his personal and political life, including serving in Parliament during the critical Hawk and Keating eras. Joining him today is Dr. Garana Gergich, senior lecturer in U.S. politics and foreign policy. Garana was born in the final stages of the Cold War, lived in the middle of the last major European conflict, is now working with NATO and joining us today from Europe. We're going to hear remarks from both panelists at the beginning and then have a discussion around some of the issues where Stephen and Garana bring unparalleled expertise. Then I want to have as much time as possible for questions from the audience. Uh, thank you to those of you who've already submitted questions. If you'd like to ask a question, please type it uh, in the little question box you'll have in your browser uh, during the discussion. And we're going to try to address as many of those as possible. Um, Stephen, I'd like to hear from you first. Can you give us a bit of historical context and your reactions to what we're seeing unfold in Europe? Uh, thanks, Mari, and uh, good morning to Verona in, uh, in Zagreb. Uh, I think the, uh, the best way to introduce this topic is to refer, refer to the fourth act of Shakespeare's Scottish play, where one of the sisters says, and I'm quoting, by the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. And that's the way Putin's invasion of Ukraine has been seen uh, in the West, indeed, around uh, much of the, uh, the world. The first casualty of this war, and it is a war, of course, we'll come to why Putin will not term it a war in a little bit of time. The first casualty of this war is not truth. Truth disappeared in Putin's Russia some time ago uh, and elsewhere, of course, in places like Belarus. The first casualty of this war is naivety on the part of the, the West and some European powers in particular. We had in the back of our consciousness the, the simple conclusion that a, uh, a European land war could not occur again the ashes of 1945 made it certain that we would not see a repetition. Of course, that's wrong. And the notion that international disputes can be solved by treaties and protocols and by, uh, by strategic dialogue really has been shattered by Putin's application of massive force of this destructive barbarism that he's unleashed upon the Ukrainian uh, society. Now that's having an impact in the United States uh, beyond doubt. Look at the response of the, the Biden administration and the active diplomacy of Secretary uh, Blinken, even in Moldova just recently. The mobilization of NATO uh, has been impressive. There's no question about that. I doubt it could have occurred under the Trump administration. It certainly has occurred under the Biden administration. And I think probably put best by Chancellor Schultz of Germany in his recent speech to the Bundestag, which I, I recommend to people, where essentially says, look, we are in a new reality. And the new reality is caused by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And, and the German centre-left government moves, a bit, moves from its traditional position, almost of passivism, to being an active military support for Ukraine, 
and for a massive increase in the German uh, defense budget. NATO uh, uh, has responded. Other countries, including Australia, uh, have responded. And it's interesting that in every crisis, it seems that humanity is able to throw up. Someone rises to the occasion and President Zelensky appears to be that person. He's speaking to the British Parliament the next 24 hours, just as he's spoken to the United States Congress, and he really has rallied uh, opinion. Not since 1945 have we seen a conflict of this order. And there's a very good reason for that. For the whole of the first Cold War, there was that balance of mutual assured destruction. Putin has shattered that by deploying conventional arms, threatening the use of nuclear weapons, to be certain but deploying uh, conventional arms. And in that circumstance, Putin made a massive miscalculation. It's even possible that as with most dictators, he believed his own propaganda machine about what was happening in Donetsk and uh, Lukansk. He underestimated the resistance of the Ukrainian armed forces and of the various militias which have been established. The fierceness of the uh, defences surprised the Russian military to the extent that some reports have it that three Russian generals have been killed in the front line. They've certainly taken far more casualties than they envisaged. The Russians thought it would be like Crimea and the Ukrainian military would melt away. But that hasn't happened. Putin underestimated the resolve of the West, dismissed Biden, dismissed Boris Johnson and other Western leaders, thought NATO was a vehicle that was rusty and uh, unable to respond. He's pushed Western countries into a much more determined profile opposing aggression. I mean, the reality is there's talk of Sweden and Finland joining NATO. That would simply be a de jure step. De facto, Sweden and Finland have been members of NATO for some time. They exchange intelligence. The Swedes and the Finns attend NATO strategy gatherings. Both countries have uh, contributed weapons uh, to the Ukrainian defence. So Putin has managed to do this. And no matter how many threats he issues, that's not going to change. I mean, for heaven's sake, he's almost caused the Swiss to abandon their, their neutrality of a century or more. That is a singular disaster for Russian diplomacy. And of course, the sanctions, financial, economic, and otherwise trade and investment will really cause the Russian economy massive damage. In the London financial markets, they are already rating Russia as being bankrupt. As to what happens next, I fear we're going to see a repeat of what happened in Grozny and Chechnya, what happened in Aleppo and Homs in, uh, in Syria. The Russian military have a history of flattening entire communities that offer uh, resistance, regardless of the civilian casualties. This is simple reality. Putin is committing mercenaries from the Wagner Group or one of those other bodies that allow the Kremlin to disavow whatever they do. So I expect what is a, a horrific scene on the battlefield and elsewhere is about to become worse. How do I arrive at that uh, uh, conclusion? I just come back to uh, someone who understood the Russian character a little better than, uh, uh, than most of us. I'm thinking of Alexander Pushkin and Eugene Onegin, where he, he made the observation, culture is a despot and will prevail. The Russian military culture is in full play at the moment. And unfortunately, we're already seeing the results of uh, that in civilian casualties and in, in devastation. I'll leave it there, Murray, and, uh, and uh, look forward to Garana's remarks. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Um, yeah, and Garana, you're in Europe right now. You lived in Europe during the last major conflict. Uh, what do you think we should know in Australia and around the world about the events that are unfolding in Ukraine? Thank you, Mari, and uh, thanks, Stephen. It's um, always a hard act to, to follow Stephen's references to great literature. Um, I might start with a, a more prosaic quote from uh, Comrade Le Lenin, who once said that there are decades when nothing happens, and then there are weeks when decades happen. And what we can uh, see in uh, now what is 11th day of Russia's invasion of Ukraine 
is uh, just, first of all, an immense humanitarian tragedy, uh, tragedy for all of the people who find themselves in Ukraine, especially after uh, what uh, Europe has said uh, should not ever happen on its soil. And as you said, Mari, I, I was uh, there in the 90s. Um, but I would first, before we get to actually the, the kind of impact of February 24th, which uh, will uh, certainly be remembered as a critical juncture in terms of European security and, and uh, I think much uh, more beyond that, uh, is uh, to, to actually think about uh, the, uh, the, the sort of impacts that we are already seeing um, on the ground uh, that have been produced uh, over the past couple of uh, days and, and the past week in terms of some of these bells that have been rung and I think that will be very hard to unring but equally uh, to understand that we find ourselves in the middle of uh, what Clausewitz called the the fog of war and that there are equally a lot of uncertainties and um, I urge everyone to just approach uh, analysis of what's going on with utmost humility and with understanding that we are all consuming information that has been been mediated, uh, either, you know, if you're getting it through uh, the, the kind of traditional media, or if you are even sourcing it from uh, different intelligence reports, it's still a digest and we are not on the ground. So um, three points around the immediate impact uh, around uh, those areas that I study, um, EU, NATO, US. So in terms of EU's response and, and the impact that uh, February 24th has had, uh, we can say that while Putin's uh, plans of a blitzkrieg uh, haven't necessarily materialized, what they have done in just a span of a couple of days is Thank you, might have frozen, Garana. Okay, we'll come back to you in just a minute. Um, hopefully your internet will come good. Stephen, I just wanna to turn to you quickly. Uh, and you know, we're, everything we are seeing is coming through different media filters. Uh, I guess, is there anything that you think about the media commentary that we might be missing as to why we now find ourselves embroiled in this ground war in Europe? I don't think we've, uh, we've looked at the historic circumstances carefully enough. I think the suggestion that Putin is endeavoring to recreate the Soviet Union is an utter nonsense. The oligarchs which surround him have done very well uh, in his system. What he's about doing is endeavoring to recreate the Russian empire. And he sees himself as a, as a modern czar, perhaps like Tsar Alexander III, who built his regime, very, very reactionary regime on uh, the Orthodox uh, Church on autocracy and on a vigorous Russian uh, nationalism. And to that extent, Putin looks back, perhaps as far as Peter the Great and the Battle of Poltava in establishing again, Russia as a serious uh, international player, as a global player. Putin was really stung by Barack Obama's dismissal of Russia as a regional power. He saw the breakup of the Soviet Union as a catastrophe, and part of that was the fact that uh, there was no longer an alternative, uh, a great power, an alternative weight to the US uh, and its allies. So he sees uh, the resumption of Russian control of Ukraine, and that's what we're talking about, here, the re resumption of Russian control of Ukraine in the same way it controls uh, Belarus as being important uh, to, uh, to Russian nationalism. And uh, I, I don't think we've seen enough of that uh, uh, covered and I'd like to see more of it. That would take us to the war in Georgia, to Crimea, and eventually to the war in Ukraine. I think we've got Garana back, so I'll leave it at that. Yes, we do. Glad to have you back, Garana. Uh, if you want to you know, pick up on the points you were walking through, Stephen was just talking about some of the broader implications for Australia, but anything else you think we need to know? Yeah. Um... It's just uh, the nature of, of Zooms um, and, and fail, failures of, of uh, uh, technology when, when you 
least want them. Um, so um, on the EU, EU side, as I said already, uh, we are seeing a major shift in terms of European Union's uh, sort of uh, uh, self-identification basically uh, going much further than uh, what has traditionally been uh, EU's uh, sort of thinking about its role in the world as either a normative or economic power and now uh, going much, much further than uh, what was even, you know, the response to uh, the annexation of Crimea and in the first years of the war in Ukraine that obviously has been going on for eight years now. Uh, on the NATO side, I think uh, we can't stress enough how much this uh, uh, has uh, impacted the, the kind of core task of NATO, uh, and that is collective defense and deterrence. So uh, a lot of uh, NATO's work over the past couple of decades has been actually more about uh, either the sort of uh, cooperative security or crisis management uh, out of area operations. This basically, again, stresses the importance of looking uh, onto, onto what has been basically the core mission. And again, this was something that was already uh, put as an imperative uh, in the wake of, of 20, to 2014, that is, but uh, now uh, has been stressed uh, even to a greater extent. And then in terms of the United States, um, I think what has been really interesting to observe uh, when it comes to the Biden administration's response is that U.S. is trying to um, balance between having a, a sort of leading coordinating role, I would say. It's uh, really interesting if you uh, take a look at uh, uh, President Biden's State of the Union speech from last week, where he did stress how the administration uh, uh, was in contact with its allies in uh, imposing the sanctions in basically mounting this sort of unified front. Uh, but at the same time, it has been doing things to signal uh, much beyond uh, what is happening in Europe, that it's not losing sight of what is the core of uh, U.S. grand strategy and and its assessment of the world uh, in the long term. And, you know, if you think about the fact that in February, uh, U.S. published its Indo-Pacific strategy, that uh, there have been some very prominent visits in the Indo-Pacific region over the past couple of weeks even while the um, uh, security crisis was escalating uh, in Ukraine, tells us a lot also about uh, where the U.S. ultimately wants to be and that even though priorities are being shifted, that uh, the strategic calculus isn't necessarily changed. But uh, what I hope we'll get to in a little bit is uh, how actually the response to what is going on will also also be determined by uh, those competitors and, and rival powers. So finally, uh, one, one, one very last thing in terms of then the, the more long reaching uh, impacts, we could distinguish between the sort of first order effects and those are, as I already mentioned on some of these, uh, um, again, uh, entities or, or countries that uh, are obviously they're imposing sanctions or uh, that uh, are impacted by what's going on um, because of their vicinity to it, ultimately also what the impact is on Ukraine and, and Russia um, in the long run, but also the second order effects. Uh, what does this mean in terms of uh, the, the ability of international organizations, in terms of the, the kind of multilateral regimes to respond to acts of brazen aggression, of, of reaches of sovereignty? What does this mean in terms of the future uh, course of, of globalization when it comes to trade or when it comes to you know, the free flow of, of information uh, via inf internet as we see basically a kind of decoupling and, and kind of splitting of, of internet? What does this mean uh, in terms of the shifting priorities um, in, in order to address some of the uh, biggest and, and kind of chronic problems that the world is facing, uh, such as climate change and similar. Um, 
we uh, are are only in the early stages and again i would just go back to that first remark and that is uh that we are in a position to probably ask way more questions than we are uh to provide answers but i do look forward to to exchanging thoughts um over the course of of the next 40 minutes or so thank you garana um and you touched on a lot of topics we do want to cover today um, sanctions, what this means for the Biden administration's approach to the Indo-Pacific, uh, some of the information warfare that's going on. But why don't we start with sanctions? Um, Stephen, this approach to sanctions where the U.S. has led on a lot of things in a way they haven't before, it's been described as weapons of mass economic destruction. Uh, do you agree with that assessment? And do you think there'll be enough to deter Putin? Uh, answer the second part of the question uh, first, Murray. No, uh, the sanctions will not deter uh, Putin. He is not looking for an off-ramp. Uh, he's made it very clear he intends to see what he calls this military operation, special military operation through, and he won't stop until he's destroyed the Ukrainian government in Kyiv, perhaps killing uh, the Ukrainian first family, uh, as President Zelensky has uh, has said. So I don't think deterrence is going to be based on sanctions in terms of the Ukrainian war. It will slow Putin down considerably when the sanctions bite. And the United States and, uh, and the NATO countries, the EU countries for that matter, have another card to play here. This will be very painful for Western Europe, not so painful for North America, which is one of the reasons the Canadians are out in front here and that is to ban imports of Russian oil and gas. That would have an enormous impact upon the Russian economy beyond what's already been uh, achieved with the sanctions coming down on the Russian central bank, which effectively freezes over $600 billion uh, of, uh, of assets on the major uh, Russian banks and then extending through the oligarchy and so on and, and so forth. You have a situation in which the sanctions can bite and can demonstrate to all and sundry just how effectively they can cripple an economy. And there are people watching this elsewhere who will watch the impact of the sanctions very carefully. Now, China can, uh, can assist Russia uh, in a number of circumstances. We've seen with wheat sales and with contracts on oil and gas and things of that nature, that's already occurred. And we've seen that the Chinese have made it clear that Putin could strip his Far Eastern defences of troops and send them to the Ukrainian front without having to worry about uh, uh, the Russian strategic back. That's already occurred. But I doubt that China wants to carry Russia in this fight in the long term. And if the West is prepared to apply sanctions in the longer term and to increase the pressure in that area I've just mentioned, oil and gas, then it does have a very serious impact upon an aggressor. And that's where I think their value happens to lie. And you mentioned, yeah, the oil um, and gas embargoes. Uh, Garana, you're an expert in US politics and you're also in Europe at the moment. Uh, do you have any takes in terms of what that might do to the political sentiment, which is a major focus of the Biden administration heading into the midterms? or how that might be viewed in Europe as well in terms of making that move to the full embargo of oil and gas from Russia? Yes, yeah, so the question of sanctions of Russian hydrocarbons exports is an interesting one from both that perspective of political economy, um, but also from the perspective of um, economic warfare actually being uh, kind of an extension of the kinetic uh, warfare that uh, we are seeing or a substitute basically for the fact that uh, NATO allies, uh, the transatlantic partners in general, uh, uh, have basically drawn a clear line as to uh, how much involvement they would have, right, ruling out sending troops or on, on, on the ground or, or uh, imposing a no-fly zone. So in terms of uh, these uh, uh, sanctions, uh, which uh, 
some are saying are basically a matter of uh, when, not if, uh, we can distinguish between oil and gas. And uh, it's important to make that distinction because in the context of uh, who gets to hurt more, uh, it seems that uh, if uh, the West collectively goes after Russia's oil, but not gas, uh, this could have a greater impact on uh, Russia's coffers uh, rather than uh, imposing it on uh, Russia's gas uh, exports uh, simply because of the, the kind of very uh, uh, banal uh, fact of, of uh, Europe still being quite dependent on Russia's gas. Uh, now, the problem uh, uh, with uh, sanctions on hydrocarbons in general is one where we are talking about an environment which is already uh, an environment of high inflation uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. So any sort of uh, uh, sanctions on the uh, uh, exports of uh, Russian energy will inevitably push the prices up, which means that they will translate obviously uh, into higher costs for the end consumers. And obviously, as you mentioned, Mari, we are talking about a year uh, when when uh, the uh, US will be seeing the midterm elections um, in November of this year, when already, uh, um, you know, I said that there has been a bit of uh, bipartisanship uh, on display in, in US Congress when it came to uh, uh, standing up uh, against Russia. But at the same time, we have to understand that uh, a lot of these uh, domestic political battles will be uh, uh, waged on on basically painting President Biden as either an unsuccessful or a weak president, uh, one that isn't able to respond to some of these economic challenges. And certainly there are calculations around that. So um, th this is something that uh, the, the administration, Biden administration especially, will have to uh, weigh out, uh, obviously, to substitute uh, Russia's uh, energy. Uh, this is not going to happen overnight. We are already seeing talks also about how uh, uh, we could see other alternatives coming up. So uh, one thing to, to also bring into conversation is the negotiations around the new Iran deal after obviously US withdrawal from JCPOA uh, under the Trump administration and how actually Iran could, uh, could uh, get into this mix or uh, the Biden administration courting uh, Saudi to to try to to get uh, more oil onto the market or even some you know uh, a kind of now pie in the skies with with Venezuela and, and similar but uh, again to to come back to to that uh, uh, very uh, the, the kind of first order question and, and that is one uh, how do you actually calibrate sanctions in a way that they do impose costs uh, and that they do in, induce uh, a behavior change. Um, I would agree with Stephen that um, this will be more like an economic war of attrition rather than something that could happen overnight. Uh, but at the same time, uh, how do you do it in a way that uh, you don't end up shooting yourself in the in the foot? Uh, um, and uh, again, uh, Europe in, is uh, in a in a way worse of a position in that sense than the US, for instance, on the whole. Yeah, and the, the embargo of um, oil and gas was one of several pleas that have come from Ukraine uh, recently. Over the weekend, there was an op-ed written by a uh, longtime aide to President Zelensky, uh, and they talked about, you know, wanting to have that full embargo on all Russian oil and exports. He talked about wanting you know, anti-tank and anti-aircraft weapons and ammunition, uh, which might have some support in the US. Uh, having a no-fly zone over Ukraine, which Putin has responded that he'll treat that as an involvement from an external party. Um, and that does not seem to be getting any traction in the US. Ban on all Russian banks from the SWIFT banking system rather than a select few. Uh, and he called on the Budapest mem memorandum for the UN Security Council to provide assistance to the Ukraine. And he says, even though Russia vetoed the measure, other members of the Security Council should uphold this. Um, it, on the flip side, and while the US is grappling with which of these things would they be willing to do, and NATO and other allied partners, which would they maybe do, which wouldn't they do? 
Putin has come out now with his kind of list of demands or Russia's demands where they say, you know, they'll stop at a moment. If these demands are met, they'll stop at a moment with this conflict in Ukraine. Uh, they want uh, Ukraine to recognize the breakaway regions of Donetsk and Lugansk, uh, the loss of Crimea, and then establishing itself as neutral uh, in relation to NATO and other alliances. Uh, really, for either of you, is do you think these kind of amputations are necessary and would stop the bleeding and would be lead to a you know stop of the conflict in Ukraine and is the best way forward, or would it really just be appeasement and the tip of the iceberg for Russia? You would need to be very naive to accept Putin's uh, suggested end to the war, uh, Murray. Uh, the Minsk Accords provide for Luhansk and Donetsk, and Gorana, correct me if I'm wrong here, to remain part of Ukraine and to be represented in the Ukrainian parliament, uh, for example. And you cannot have a, a situation in international relations where the neighbour hives off a, a piece of, of, uh, of another state, claims it, and then wants it uh, formalised uh, in an agreement simply won't work. What's to stop Putin moving again on Georgia, moving on Moldova and so on, or other non-NATO countries in the arena? That is appeasement. I cannot see the Ukrainians agreeing to that. They've put up too fierce and independent resistance in support of their sovereignty to defend their sovereignty to agree to something like that. It does show that Putin has now realised he doesn't have the army that he thought he had. Uh, this is not the first time in Russian history that uh, that this has happened. Look back to the winter war in Finland in 1939. Stalin had to come to the exactly the same uh, conclusion. So Putin offers uh, an olive branch, which is poisoned, knows it will not be accepted. Then he can move uh, to a, uh, a much more violent uh, effort uh, uh, simply uh, destroying opposition from the uh, from the air, as I said, as he's done in Grozny, done in Aleppo and Homs and elsewhere. And I think that, what's that about? I don't think that's a reasonable basis for a settlement that's been offered. And if we turn our minds to the kind of nuclear threat we're facing at the moment uh, in the Cold War, the buildup of nuclear weapons, uh, the concept was to get them to a point where either, you know, Russia could be destroyed or the US could be destroyed many times over. That was predicated on this, as Stephen, you mentioned in your opening re remarks, deterrence due to assured mutual destruction. Uh, but now Putin seems to be cavalierly threatening nuclear force by announcing that he is making his nuclear triad combat ready. Um, and over the weekend, we saw, you know, the capture of some of the nuclear power bases in Ukraine. It feels like this word is coming up over and over, and we're at a level we haven't seen for a long time. When was the last time that we were at this heightened state of nuclear readiness? Uh, and how can the U.S. and other nuclear powers respond? Do you want me to take a run at that, uh, Murray? Yeah, go for it, Garana. Well, very briefly, yeah, I'd, I'd like to hear Garana's view. We came very close to a nuclear confrontation during the Reagan administration in those years, 1980 through through 1985, where Soviet paranoia had taken hold in the Kremlin to a more pronounced degree than usual. And the Soviets became convinced that NATO was about to launch a first strike against the USSR. And it got to the point where you had uh, Warsaw Pact aircraft in uh, the German Democratic Republic in East Germany being equipped with tactical nuclear missiles to respond to an attack that they thought was coming from the US and the other Western nuclear powers. This was a, a, an appalling fabrication in, in imagination. Ronald Reagan actually had to call the Soviet ambassador into the Oval Office and to state bluntly that the West had absolutely no plans, no intention of attacking the Soviet Union or the Warsaw Pact at all. And people could stand down and that diffused the crisis. So we came close in, uh, in those years. What's changed is that Russian military doctrine 
uh, this in the, the words of the uh, uh, chairman of their chiefs of staff, Valery Gerasimov, whom you see in those uh, television uh, uh, footages of, of, of Putin and, uh, and the other military leaders. Gerasimov has, has had the opinion that it's possible to use uh, tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield without provoking an overall nuclear war. This is an absolute nonsense. And the doctrine holds, well, if it's a non-NATO power or a NATO non-nuclear power, uh, the Russians can use tactical nuclear weapons and there won't be a, there won't be a blowback. Well, the point is whenever that's been war-gamed, the blowback has been massive and it leads to a general nuclear exchange and a, a global nuclear war. But the Russians hold to this. So when Putin rattles the nuclear uh, silo, uh, he's talking in a different language to that which uh, Brezhnev and Andropov uh, uh, used to talk. So it is, uh, it is very dangerous and has to be regarded very seriously. In Garana, last year in one of the webinars as part of your uh, NATO experts talk series, there was a focus on NATO's role toward disarmament and how they try to de-escalate a lot of these tensions as part of the alliance. I guess from a NATO perspective, how are these nuclear threats viewed? Because Ukraine is not technically part of NATO at the moment, but how do they respond to those kinds of threats happening in Europe? So there are a couple of things there. Um, first of all, we, we can't overstate the potential, uh, the, the impact uh, that obviously any sort of uh, a mishap or uh, further escalation around, uh, you know, capture of uh, some of these nuclear power plants uh, could have on not just uh, security in Ukraine, but also uh, Europe and and uh, then then more more broadly, uh, if anything was to happen of the scale, you know, that we saw uh, in Chernobyl um, now nearly thirty six years ago. So uh, in that sense, what was uh, going on just a couple of days uh, around Zaporizhia, um, the nuclear power plant uh, was pretty scary uh, to to say the least. Um, but I would say um, this has the the whole question of of uh, uh, nuclear armament uh, has has also put into forefront uh, the pledge that President Biden made around changing uh, U.S.'s stance on the use of uh, nuclear weapons and uh, this debate that we've seen actually uh, go on in Washington uh, around sole use and uh, no first use pledge and, and so on and uh, basically uh, what this is going to, to mean in, in the context of U.S.'s nuclear posture review um, that, that we we should uh, um, see um, over over the the soon soon coming up uh, that is so. Um in, in that sense, uh, around the, the kind of two uh, uh, sides of the coin, one being nuclear weapons or uh, nuclear armament as a deterrent, and then the other one, uh, the need to actually uh, be engaged in conversations around uh, strategic uh, um, uh, stability, around reduction, around uh, limits to, to nuclear armament. Uh, this is made uh, all the the, the harder, obviously, with what's going on. So we know that uh, last year when President Biden and, and uh, Vladimir Putin may, met in uh, Geneva, uh, they were talking about uh, the need to, to engage in these talks around arms control, for instance. Uh, but uh, given what's going on in Ukraine, some of these things will inevitably be shelved or deprioritized uh, for the time being or uh, just basically, you know, uh, given that the lines of communication are now at, at the level of, of just basic kind of agreement around the the confliction mechanisms isn't leaving a lot of space for some of these uh, uh, deeper um, strategic talks to happen. So in that sense, uh, the, the kind of agenda on arms control, uh, for instance, on non-proliferation is one that certainly will stand to lose given uh, what's going on uh, in Ukraine at the moment. Um, and I'll go to one more question before we uh, go over to answering some of the audience questions. Uh, this one really is for either of you, but 
we're seeing the use of both information and disinformation on a lot of levels uh, at different aspects of this conflict. Uh, we've seen the Biden administration's approach to deterrence by disclosure, sharing kind of this is what's going to happen and pre-gaming that. And then so far, it seems like everything they've said is going to happen has happened. We've seen President Zelensky, you know, taking to the streets, doing posts from social media, winning hearts and minds to now a point where there's discussions about, oh, who's going to play him in the movie about this one day? Uh, and then we've seen, you know, on the Russian front, uh, not just their own, you know, propaganda and disinformation, but changing of their legislation, targeting fake news to a point where now uh, most of the major media outlets have withdrawn from Russia over concerns about going to jail of their independent coverage. So I guess my question for either of you is how effective have these information tactics been? And what are the impacts that we can see as a result of this? So on the deterrence by disclosure, uh, which was basically a, a kind of a more novel uh, tactic that uh, US tried uh, along with, with allies uh, to essentially deny Vladimir Putin this sort of element of surprise. Um, I would say that um, obviously it's been quite mixed. Uh, and I think it's more about the fact that uh, what uh, majority of us probably uh, weren't expecting was actually uh, a kind of conventional war of this scale uh, in Ukraine um, at all. And so in that sense, um, uh, in, in terms of the potential kind of forecasting of, of scenarios and, and kind of, uh, um, you know, uh, just uh, letting it, it, it kind of, uh, or, or portraying it out there, um, it was uh, tried as, as an element that might actually stall the, the invasion and, and kind of prolong uh, the period of, of these negotiations, but clearly uh, it, didn't, it didn't necessarily uh, sway Putin. Um, what I would say in terms of the, just the, the kind of general information warfare, uh, Vladimir Putin's ability to uh, control uh, the, the kind of messaging out of Kremlin to uh, enlist allies in the West uh, has been uh, severely impacted by what's going on in Ukraine. And I think that, uh, you know, uh, what we've seen over the past uh, two or three weeks now uh, is the fact that um, some of the, those that have maybe in Europe being on the fence or even openly expressed uh, admiration for Putin and, and his regime have now been uh, essentially uh, um, forced to either uh, to, to kind of switch sides or or to at least not uh, appear in public with those views. And so in that sense, uh, Putin's ability to engage in that kind of the, the extent to which uh, he engaged in information warfare uh, has uh, changed drastically. And that's also owing to the uh, the images and the messages that are coming out of Ukraine. Um, so. Putin's brand is toxic, and uh, you're absolutely right that in terms of uh, the, the way that Ukraine is portrayed, Ukrainian people, uh, their leadership, uh, it's certainly in that kind of uh, global competition, if you wish, for winning hearts and mind, uh, minds of, of the globe, uh, it's resoundingly on uh on, on the Ukrainian side. And this is something that we've seen as well in, uh, you know, just uh, recently the uh, UN General Assembly's uh, uh, resolution where over two thirds of the uh, uh, UNGA uh, uh, voted uh, in support of Ukraine and, and similar. So um, in, that, in, in that sense, uh, it's, it's quite clear uh, where, where things are, are going. But uh, at the same time, we should not uh, also uh, underestimate uh, Putin and also the fact that he is not without uh, allies. And uh, I'm sure we'll get to, to those questions around China uh, in a little bit. Thank you. Um, now for the first audience question, uh, Stephen, I was hoping you could uh, answer this, but what 
or will, will what's happening now, will it increase or decrease the likelihood of China invading Taiwan, which is something you talked about a little bit earlier as well in terms of what this means for Asia and other events unfolding. Well, Beijing is at a crossroads uh, too in terms of its uh, no limitations agreement with uh, Putin, which already seems to be uh, quite constricted. Does uh, Xi Jinping wish to play the statesman's role here globally and help settle the conflict? Does China want to stay with Russia throughout this conflict, be supportive and inevitably be grouped with the Kremlin as, uh, as another dictatorship, which is sympathetic uh, to, uh, to aggression? There's no question in, in my mind that two situations, Taiwan and the Ukraine, are not analogous. There, there are uh, similarities. There's no question uh, about that. But in terms of China's designs on Taiwan, it's got a number of other factors to take into, into, uh, into its assessment. There is a treaty relationship under the Taiwan Relations Act between the US and Taiwan. And while it's not explicit that the US would come to Taiwan's assistance, it is assumed in Washington that that's the case. And there's a convergence in the US Congress on China, which very much moves across the, uh, the aisle from the left of the Democratic Party to the right of the Republican Party, that it's, uh, uh, at least China is a strategic adversary. The Chinese also have to take into account the response of, uh, of other US allies, particularly the Japanese, if they endeavor to, uh, to take Taiwan militarily. And the re response of much of the globe, including in the UN General Assembly, to which Gorana uh, just made reference, will have uh, not been ignored in Beijing in terms of the impact upon its interests if it began a conflict. The Chinese don't want to worsen their relations with the Americans. They certainly don't want to alienate European uh, opinion. They have substantial economic trade and investment interests in, uh, in Europe, including in Ukraine, by the way, where Ukrainian corn is important to their agriculture for a start. So there are all these calculations that must be uh, uh, made in Beijing. If I had to offer an opinion, I say it makes a conflict in the Taiwan Straits less likely. Can you rule it out? No, of course not. But I think it becomes less likely given what's happened in Ukraine. Thank you, Stephen. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Karana. And and maybe just to add to that, I, I uh, agree with Stephen. I would just say that we have to um, distinguish between the impact that uh, 2014 uh, annexation of Crimea had on Xi's thinking versus uh, what uh, is going on at the moment. And certainly uh, the, the 2014 and uh, the, the kind of uh, low or lower intensity conflict that was going on in Ukraine uh, made China probably uh, much, much uh, uh, more uh, sympathetic, I would say, to the kind of tactics that were employed by Putin. But uh, at this point, uh, we have seen China kind of trying to balance. I wouldn't uh, say that much has change in terms of the strategic assessments uh, on part of either, obviously, Russia and China, uh, where they see each other uh, moving forward. Uh, China obviously would have preferred uh, uh, more stability and, and kind of predictability uh, in, in terms of the way that international affairs are conducted, but uh, this also gives uh, China the ability to, to maybe not be uh, in the spotlight uh, as much. I do agree with Stephen that uh, seeing the united front on part of the allies is something that could act as a deterrent. Um, but equally, this sort of uh, uh, now the, the opportunity for uh, Russia and China to come closer together is something, again, that shouldn't be underestimated uh, moving, moving forward. Um, so um, in that sense, uh, also uh, one final thing and that goes 
to, to that kind of humility around assessments. We are talking about different theaters as well. And, uh, you know, the Indo-Pacific uh, is uh, obviously a theater, which is primarily a maritime uh, space, as opposed to the, the kind of landmass that we are talking about in um, Europe and the, the type of warfare we would see, uh, again, the engagement of some of these uh, emerging and disruptive technologies as well. Um, in the context of, of uh, China and, and Taiwan uh, are, are all the, the, the kind of things that also need to be factored in, in, in these calculations. But uh, certainly uh, we haven't seen as resound, resounding of a support uh, uh, from, from China at this point uh, that probably uh, Vladimir Putin would have uh, hoped for, but uh, equally I wouldn't say that the hopes to enlist China as a mediator uh, in this conflict or as someone that would, could uh, help stop uh, Vladimir Putin um, are, are all that um, warranted or, or that uh, they, they could uh, materialize anytime soon. Uh, we've received uh, a couple of questions that kind of touch on how does this conflict influence uh, the relationship between Russia and other countries, um, as well as, uh, you know, other alliances outside of NATO and Europe. Uh, but yeah, noting Russia's re recent rekindling of closer ties with Laos, Myanmar, large scale investment in Indonesia's tourism sector, including Bali. Uh, it's a fast, uh, a lot of things growing and changing, shifting in the Indo-Pacific. Could this add, um, signal an added strategic dimension for Australian and Western interests across ASEAN? Um, and will it need to recalibrate in the near future uh, in the aftermath of the Ukraine-Russia conflict? And this also ties in, I think, with something we talked about a little bit earlier about you know, the just released Biden Indo-Pacific strategy. Does that need a recalibration uh, as a result of these developments? Strategically, there'll need to be a good deal of recalibration, not only insofar as NATO is concerned, but uh, US allies uh, elsewhere. Uh, the Russian challenge is nowhere near as serious or as significant as the challenge from Beijing in the South Pacific and amongst the countries of ASEAN. So while it has to be factored into uh, our thinking, it's uh, not a priority at the moment, nor will it become a priority a lot of uh, uh, states are very wary in the wake of the sanctions regime imposed by the West upon Russia of doing business with Russia. And certainly investment will largely dry up in the Russian economy from places uh, uh, around the world. And there are a lot of companies already, we've seen the oil companies withdrawing, for example, we've seen Visa and MasterCard leaving. We have a circumstance in, in which Companies are very wary of being caught in the sanctions net or being fined massively for being seen to do business with those who do business with Russian companies. So I don't think a Russian economic challenge uh, is a serious uh, challenge in, uh, in our region of the world. I think the challenge from China far more significant and will continue to be. Yeah, so in the context, and just to, to add two cents to this, in, in this context of heightened um, uh, competition and, and rivalry uh, between um, the West more broadly and, and Russia, uh, it will be much harder for certain states that wanted to be kind of third wayers or non-aligned in a sense of kind of 21st century politics to remain so uh because of what, what Stephen mentioned, uh, potential impacts, the kind of sec secondary sanctions and similar. Um, so obviously we, we are seeing corporations already factoring this uh, in limiting exposure uh, to, to uh, the, the potential reach of the sanctions. But again, it seems that uh, the ability of certain states to try to practice that uh, kind of pluralized uh, uh, diplomacy is being increasingly narrowed. So some countries, for instance, to, to take a look at, you know, 
India, for instance, or Israel, their politics, uh, where they have tried to, to be aligned with uh, the, or have been increasingly aligned uh, with uh, the West, but then at the same time, try to uh, have good relations with Russia are probably uh, going to uh, um, be put to at least a question moving forward, uh, if, if not uh, re-examined. Thank you. Um, and depending on time, this might be our last question. We'll see. Uh, I think this is something on a lot of people's minds. Uh, but do you believe that this conflict can lead to a level similar to the Second World War? Or can it be resolved before we reach that point? What are your thoughts and reactions? We, uh, we need to be very careful. And to date, NATO is being very careful to avoid the kind of incident that can lead to a full-blown war between the NATO alliance and, uh, and Russia. Uh, is it uh, possible to say whether or not that kind of flashpoint incident uh, can be avoided? No, but certainly the Western powers are doing all with, uh, within reason uh, to avoid that. There, there's an element in here which should be mentioned, uh, Murray, and that's the bravery of the Russian opposition. The extraordinary courage that ordinary Russians show going into the streets of cities across the country to demonstrate against uh, uh, Putin. And we should do all uh, within, within the law and within reason uh, to be supportive. And people asked earlier about, uh, about cyber. The work of Anonymous has been very good hacking into Russian television channels to play footage of what is actually going on uh, in, uh, in Ukraine showing that there is a war, for example. And I think that's going to become increasingly significant in terms of um, not so much the balance of power, but the balance of opinion. There are already reports of some Russian Orthodox priests speaking out uh, in their churches against the war. Now, Putin enjoys the support of, the, uh, of Archbishop uh, uh, Kirill, uh, the primate in, in Moscow, but it doesn't mean he enjoys the support of the entire church. And I think these elements have to be taken into consideration. The ordinary Russians are going to suffer grievously under these sanctions. But the more we can be supportive of them, marvellous people, marvellous warm and welcoming people, have the privilege of travelling their country a number of occasions. The more we can be supportive is not only the right thing to do, but it has an impact in terms of the overall Russian perspective on, uh, on the future in Europe and elsewhere. Thanks. Um, I think one last question I'd love to hear from both of you quickly, uh, if we could. And I think, again, this is on everyone's mind, but how can the war end? Uh, will it be something like occupation of a devastated Ukraine with the guerrilla warfare? So what do you see as how is this gaming out? How does the war end? Maybe, Garana, can we come to you first? Yes, yeah, so there are uh, a lot of different kind of paths from here. First of all, to, you know, if we go down the route of uh, some sort of negotiated settlement, what would it take actually to get both sides to credibly commit to some sort of set settlement, to get to the table in a credible way? Uh, is some form of mutually hurting stalemate. And we hope that that one doesn't come uh, um, with, with a, a lot more blood spilled. Uh, and uh, what that could mean, you know, in terms of how Ukraine looks uh, in, in the future, whether it's basically, uh, you know, Ukraine without uh, the east without parts of the south or whether it's ukraine that would be uh, under some sort of federal arrangements as stephen was already talking about in terms of the the kind of context of minsk too and so on um i i don't think that it's very likely that we are going to see uh that kind of power sharing in, in the most op optimistic sense uh, happen uh, anytime soon. Um, but, you know, I would like to remain hopeful. But then in terms of, you know, Ukraine moving forward, um, 
Is this a country that is going to be Finlandized or is it going to be Israelized? And what I mean by this is whether uh, or is it going to be absorbed somehow uh, within the Euro-Atlantic integration? Um, so there is already a lot of talk, and I'm going to, to wrap up here, a lot of talk about, you know, uh, again, Russia winning militarily, but uh, una being unable to, to do it uh, politically. Um, um, so if that's the case, what are the prospects of some of these scenarios materializing? Um, we simply don't know at this point, again, uh, being now in the 12th day of, uh, of the invasion. But uh, again, those scenarios are all uh, uh, you know, plausible to an extent and uh, should be given uh, consideration. Thanks. And we're at time, but Stephen, I do want to hear just quickly from you in terms of how do you think this ends? As briefly as I, I can be, uh, Murray. Ukraine's made a determination. They wish to be European, like the Georgians, like the Baltic uh, states. So they'll stay on that course. Uh, the Russians can win every battle and lose the war, as uh, Garana intimated. Worst possible scenario, a puppet Russian government in Kyiv, uh, a government of Ukraine that's recognized widely, that's in exile in Poland or somewhere else in, uh, uh, in the West and a long-term uh, insurgency. Uh, that I think unfortunately is the, uh, is the most probable uh, result. The Russian military can prevail on the battlefield, but they cannot uh, prevail internationally and uh, ultimately the invasion will fail. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for your time today, uh, sharing your thoughts and your insights on the situation unfolding in Ukraine. Thank you very much to everyone who's joined this webinar. We appreciate you joining us.